And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will even put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Okay, so that's our passage this morning. And uh, we're going to try to plow through it and catch the overarching pictures that are there. 
definitely a difficult passage this past week, as you can imagine, but in the faithfulness of preaching through Luke, we've got to preach through this. So we're going to do our best to have the Lord lead us through this. Let me just pray for a moment. God, thank you for gathering us together. We ask for your help as we work through this portion of Scripture. We pray that you would guide us and lead us in application for it. So help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Big idea for the sermon this morning as we go through this portion is this. Christians, do not fear global chaos. Get ready for Jesus to return. Do not fear global chaos. Instead, get ready for Jesus to return. It's no secret as you listen to the news that our world is in a time of chaos. And no doubt if you lived in any of the centuries between Christ's coming, his first coming, and his second coming, you would come to the same conclusion as there have been series of wars. Perhaps as we have more access to news and media of things going, around, going on around the world, we are more aware of these chaotic events that are taking place. We wonder if the guy in Korea is going to hit the button and if World War III is going to start. We wonder what's going to happen in Syria and if the continual killings are going to take place. We wonder what's going to happen off the coast of Alaska as bombers fly by there. We're starting into summer and we wait to see what kinds of hurricane season or hurricanes we'll experience this season. In all of this, we can say that there is chaos going on. And as we study the scriptures, Romans 8 says that all of creation groans under the weight of what's going on. I think about a ship that's out on the sea and it groans as it goes up one wave and you hear the boards creaking. There's a weight that is on it. And at some point, that boat is going to be crushed and a new boat is going to be built the same way creation is groaning year by year under the weight of sin, and God in His timing is going to pour out judgment and going to recreate the earth. For us, we live in the time of chaos. As we read through this portion of Scripture, we have a correct Christian response to this time of chaos. Not to be fearful, but to get ready for Jesus to return. Now, Before we get into this passage, I want to give you a word concerning the nature of prophecy. Prophecy is often given by God with near fulfillments and far fulfillments. Let me give you an example where you see near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Common verse that we often hear at Christmas. For unto you, child is born... Unto you a son is given. Semicolon. And the government will be upon his shoulder and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay? Let's take a look at that for just a second. Unto you a son is born, unto you a child has been given. Has that taken place yet? Yes, we would say that took place at Jesus' birth. Semicolon. And he will carry the government, and his name will be called by the government, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Has that taken place yet? No, it hasn't yet. That's going to be the millennial reign of Christ there. If 
It has, verse 7 goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so why am I sharing that with you? In one verse, you have a phrase, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, fulfilled. Semicolon, you have a phrase next that is yet to be fulfilled. And just by that semicolon being there, you have at least 2,000 years. Bam! Right there. All right? Put yourself in Isaiah's audience, and you're listening to that verse that's being prophesied, and you look at the first phrase of the prophecy, man, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and it's going to happen right after that, that his government is going to be set up, and we'll run into the millennial kingdom, and life is going to be great. Newsflash, 2,000 years at least have been separated by that first statement and that second statement. Some people say prophecy is like standing back and looking at a mountain range. From a distance, it looks very two-dimensional. You see the peaks of the mountain side by side. Looks like there's no space in between. But as you approach the Rockies, you see those soaring peaks, and you get to the first mountain, you drive past it, and that peak that appeared to be right next to that other one a few miles back is actually like miles away. When you get into prophecy, Christians, you have to realize that prophecy is given in such a way where it's like mountain peaks and you observe it from a distance and everything seems to be chronological in nature. But actually, when you get up to it, there can be long valleys, long stretches of time between one statement, a semicolon, and the next statement, Isaiah 9 being evidence of that. Now, when we come to prophecy, then the goal of prophecy is not, and let me just stress this for us this morning, the goal of prophecy is not for Nate to get out his whiteboard and have a timeline going from left to right and have a cross that's set up there for Jesus' arrival and then have arrows pointing down, arrows pointing up, and arrows pointing across saying, this is when and this is how it happens. The point of prophecy is for us to see the greatness and the grandeur of God as we observe the whole panoramic view. If we get stuck taking a look at the picture that is somewhat two-dimensional and start arguing about this mountain peak and that mountain peak and the amount of time that's in between, you're going to lose sight of the whole purpose of prophecy. The Scriptures are not given for us to orchestrate timelines, I mean, it's not a bad thing to try to do. The Scriptures are given to us so that we might have a big view of who God is. Let the language of prophecy capture your soul because it will draw out an emotional response where you'll say, man, God wins. Every time in prophecy, God wins. His way happens. So if we get tied up in the timelines... You're going to come away from this sermon this morning scratching your head saying, well, when's that supposed to take place? Is Nate pre-trib? Is he post-trib? What's going on? I thought we were all this. You're missing the whole point. What we have to do is see the bigness of God. Isaiah 9 being an example for us. All right, so let's jump into where we're at in Luke. We're in chapter 21. Jesus has been teaching in the temple complex. 
You remember the temple complex is a large courtyard area. This, this week, I saw some more specific dimensions. The courtyard itself is approximately 400 yards by 500 yards. And in the middle of that courtyard is this huge temple building that some people considered it to be a wonder of the world back in the first century. In verse 5, we pick up our portion of Scripture while Jesus is there in the temple complex. Some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. All right? The temple, it, it, was, it was a beautiful uh, structure, a beautiful building. Josephus says that the temple had marble stones that were up to 67 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. I mean, just let your mind sort of capture the massive chunk of marble that they shipped from somewhere around the world, transported it up to the temple mount, placed it where they wanted it so that it could be used to build the temple. It it was an incredible looking building. On one side of the temple, there were all kinds of plates or ornaments of gold that were placed there. Goes on to say, Josephus goes on to say that the gold of the temple flashed in the sun as a snow clad mountain. As people came into the temple complex and observed the, 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 the beautiful gold that's on there and the awesome architecture and the wonder of how marble was transported by Herod the Great to come into this temple complex and to build this amazing second temple. If you know your Old Testament history, this is the second temple building of the temple. It's an amazing feature. And Jesus hears several people just just speaking out about the temple and how it was so beautiful. And he says in verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so soak it all in for just a minute. Let's go to Washington, D.C. in our mind, and we're standing outside the Washington Cathedral. Or maybe some of you have been to London, and you've seen St. Paul's Cathedral, and you're standing back in amazement as you see the soaring arches that are going up. And you wonder, how was this built, and, and what, what was needed to, to, to make such a building? And you're adoring the building that's there, and then somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I got news for you. The day is coming when every stone of this place is going to be pulled down. Now, Jesus leaves the temple complex according to Matthew and Mark. Okay? Luke just fast forwards and gets to the right next verse. We find that we're actually on the Mount of Olives later on that day. And this becomes known as the Olivet Discourse. Peter, James, John, and Andrew come up alongside of Jesus and they say, how is it that this thing is going to be torn down? What, what is going on, Jesus? And Jesus goes into an explanation. And that's where we find ourselves in verses 8 and following. The reason why the disciples are concerned about this is because they know that for that building to come down, there must be some sort of weird destruction, some sort of doom that comes in order to tear this great building down. Nobody would ever do that to reconstruct a new one. It's like being in London back in the 40s and knowing that the bombings are going to take place. So these four disciples come up along Jesus 
and with a little bit of worry or concern in their voice, they ask Jesus about these things. What will be? What will these things be? And what will the sign be when these things take place? And here is Jesus' response, and it is a response for us today. I want to start off by just giving you point number one. Do not worry about the chaos. Do not worry about the chaos that comes in the world. Jesus goes on to talk about what's going to happen in the future here, and he gives us a sign. Don't be, deso- don't be deceived by false messiahs. Don't be deceived by false messiahs. Look at verse 8. Jesus says this, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. And he says, do not go after them. Do not be led astray by false messiahs, disciples. Imposters of me are going to come. And for centuries, there have been posers. Just two decades after Jesus ascended into heaven, historians tell us that people started popping up on the scenes claiming to be Jesus having returned from heaven in order to gather a following. Jesus is telling his disciples that people are going to come in my name, but do not follow them. They are deceivers. Paul warned Timothy of the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, where he said, Imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to happen. Jesus said it's going to take place. And nothing has changed over the centuries. Many people will have claimed that Jesus has returned and talked specifically to them in order to give them special secret instructions on how to lead the people of God. They're cults. One such cult is Mormonism, where Joseph Smith claims that Jesus came and appeared to him and gave him special instructions. No doubt, this is of Satan. We read about Satan in the book of Corinthians where he is a deceiver and he shows up as an angel of light. And he comes perhaps in the likes of Jesus in order to lure men and women and children, hundreds, even thousands away and astray from Jesus. So friends, let me just implore you with point number one. Do not be led astray by those who claim to have a special revelation from Jesus. Do not get lured into their teachings out of curiosity and do not go after them even out of fear. Jesus clearly says that many people will be coming. So friends, brothers, sisters, when the next Yahoo pops up on the scene, trust Jesus. Don't go after him. Point number two, don't be terrified by global chaos. Don't be terrified by global chaos. Look at verse 9. He says this, and when you hear of wars and tumults, okay, two words there, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but then the end will not be at once, okay? So here's Jesus talking to his friends saying, I want to give you a heads up on what's going to happen. Wars and tumults are going to be taking place. Look at verse 10. Here's the wars. He said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom will be rising up against kingdom. In the times of the disciples, this was surely the case as Jewish sects in society were rising up trying to oppose Rome and rebel against Rome. It's been a part of earth's 
history, as nations have been rising up against nations, as wars have been taking place. But it's not just that. It's also that tumults. What are tumults, all right? That's a word that we don't use every day. Tumults is described in verse 11. There will be earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. We read about this already starting in the book of Acts, where Jerusalem was experiencing a severe famine, and Paul had to travel around to different churches and take up an offering so that the Christians in Jerusalem could be supported. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Do not be terrified when you read the Jerusalem Gazette. These things must happen first. They have to take place. Now, we as Christians step back and we say, we believe in the omniscience of God. We believe that he knows all things from beginning to end, and he's telling us that this is going to happen. And we find great security in knowing that God knows the timeline of events. We believe in God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. We believe he is in control over all things. In fact, we trust that because it is happening, whatever it is, it is somehow a part of God's plan for redemptive history. So keep in mind the perspective of mountain peaks. These things are going to continue, and we don't necessarily know how much time is in between the mountain peaks that Jesus is talking about for the future. We know that God is in complete control of time. We know that he is the God of world history. The world, on the other hand, believes that their security is not found in a transcendent God who is overseeing all things from beginning to end, the world gets terrified. Your friends and your neighbors get terrified when global chaos starts to happen, and they search for security in places like the Oval Office or the Pentagon, and they wish that the right person would be there. And Christians, here's what Jesus is saying, God is in control. I know that these things are going to happen. It's going to take place as creation groans under the weight of sin. So Christians, we're not terrified by the global chaos of the world. We trust that things are going to happen because Jesus has told us they will. Verse 12 says that we're going to go into time of persecution. Okay? Look at verse 12. It says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. All right, what kind of persecution is going on here? Well, in verse 12, it's social persecution. How do we know that? Because it says that you are going to be taken to the synagogues. Why the synagogues? First century, Jews were functioning as a community, and the synagogue was the center of that community. A religious infidel, somebody who followed Jesus, would be taken to that synagogue And in front of the rabbi, one of the signs that the rabbi would give that this person is no longer a part of that community, they'd be slapped across the face. It was a sign of this person has been banished from our community. So those who followed Jesus were risking isolation. They were taken to the synagogue. They knew what was going to happen. They were going to be ostracized from their community. Some would be taken to prisons because they were claiming Christ as their king. And there's no king but Caesar. So 
You are an insurrectionist now at this point. You can't win. There's not only social persecution, but there's familial persecution taking place within families. Look down at verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will even be put to death. Family members would betray you because you are claiming Jesus as your Savior. So here's what Jesus is saying. Don't quit because of persecution. Look at verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your life in the face of persecution. Now let me just give you three outcomes of persecution. Three outcomes of Christian persecution. Number one is this. Jesus' name will be proclaimed. Jesus' name will be proclaimed. You see that again in verses 12 and 13. I'm picking up in the middle of verse 12. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. My name's sake. This will be your opportunity to witness. Okay? Throughout history, persecution has a way of squeezing the sponge of evangelism. The more pressure that persecution has on the church, the more pressure that the church is squeezed, what happens? The word of evangelism, the word of Christ comes out. The disciples surely saw this, and we see it as we read the book of Acts, as men like Peter, Stephen, James, and eventually Paul would suffer or be killed for the name of Jesus. But what happened in the midst of their persecution? Peter was at his best in Acts chapter 4 when he's being persecuted by the religious leaders. They tell, they tell him, don't you dare do this, and they beat them, him and John. He says, we can't help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. You've got Paul. He's in chains. And what is happening when he is in the chains of persecution? The Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write letters and to witness to the prison guards. And we don't know, but maybe even in Rome, he was able to get an audience before Caesar and share Christ with Caesar. We know that Stephen, in the midst of martyrdom, all he could do was name Christ, and his story goes on for centuries now as the first martyr in Christian history. What happens to the church when persecution comes? Folks, Jesus says this, my name gets proclaimed in all of this. Second outcome that happens in the midst of persecution is this, God's grace is sufficiently present. Grace will be sufficiently present. Look at verse 14. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So here's what Jesus is saying. When those times of intense persecution come in and you are forced to give an answer for why you are doing what you do, are doing or why you are saying what you are saying, Jesus says this, when you get to that point, don't worry. My grace is going to back up like a, a loader and just unload plenty of sufficient grace for you at that moment. Now, all of you who are teaching Sunday school classes and junior church this afternoon, this verse is not for you, that you don't have to prep during the week, okay? You should be preparing for your audiences that are, you're going to have to teach. But those who are in the midst of persecution, Jesus gives this special promise that the grace of Jesus will be sufficient to meet the demand of persecution. That is a promise that you can claim and hold on to. 
that the grace of Jesus will be sufficient to meet the demand in persecution. God's grace is always going to be sufficient for you at that moment. Now, let me just step away for a moment and talk about application. We believe this, we have to live by the promises of this book. Okay? And when I think about this church, and I think about the future that God may give to this church through young people, let me just talk to you for a minute, young people. If God is calling you to live out your faith this week at school, or if he's calling you to live out your faith at work, but you always have that antagonist where you know that if you follow Christ faithfully, that person is going to be there like with daggers ready to stab at you. All right? Here's the truth. Hold on to the back of Jesus' shirt and get ready for an exciting ride. It may hurt. Peter ended up being persecuted upside down. But here's the truth. When you get to that point, Jesus' grace is going to be sufficient for you to answer with words that are needed in that moment. Some of you, God would be luring you towards missions in hard-to-reach places. And they're hard to reach for a reason. You know why? Because people who have gone there have been killed. And you're wondering, God, should I follow you in the mission field? I won't know what to say. I don't have the correct theological training. I haven't gone to school and gotten a Bible degree. There's no Bible degree needed in the Word of God to be a missionary or a pastor. What's needed is faithfulness and the Spirit of God pulling people along. And young person, if God is doing that work in your heart right now, and you're just freaked out because you hear the stories, you hear where people have died, and you see the news where heads have rolled. Here's the truth. When you get to that place, God's grace will be sufficient for you. Let me just press in one step further. Some of you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that you're kind of on the fence of crossing over into faith is because you know that certain people are going to reject you, they're going to oppose you, they're going to give you a hard time. Here is the promise. You step out in faith and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will face hard times, just like the book of Acts shows many hard times face, but none of them say, I want to give it up, turn away, go home, and never be a follower of Christ. Those who experience persecution experience the overwhelming grace of God, and their relationship with God is just tightened. So look, brothers and sisters, when persecution comes, God's grace is going to be sufficient for you to meet the demand in the midst of persecution. It's a promise that we live by. Number three, a third outcome of persecution found in verse 19. Let me, say, let me go back, verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a head of your hair a hair of your head. <laughs> That'd be interesting if all of your hairs had heads to them, but uh, your head has hairs to it. <clears throat> Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. Another word for gain right there is you will acquire your lives. Here's what Jesus is saying. Saving faith holds on all the way to the end. We may not do this perfectly, we have examples like Peter who failed in this and denied Jesus 
in the Gospels. We have examples like Peter. But then we have examples like Peter, who in the book of Acts, after a lapse in his faith earlier in life, goes boldly into the next chapter of his life with endurance, he proclaims Jesus in times of intense persecution. And Jesus says in verse 18, not a hair of your head. That's the tongue twister. Not a hair of your head will perish. And the question is, how does that work? The answer to it is this. Those who are allied next to Jesus, those who are allied with Jesus, everything about you is totally secure in his hand. Not one hair on your head will perish in vain and be wasted. Jesus is with you. And in fact, when Christians give their lives up in persecution, all they do is cross through the curtain to experience eternal life. That's what they gain. By their endurance, you acquire eternal life into the presence of God forever and ever. So don't quit when persecution comes. You may physically die, and I'm just saying that for the one or two who may go off to the mission field or those who live for the next few decades and perhaps persecution comes on the church here in America. Jesus' name can be proclaimed, and those who endure to the end will be saved. God's grace will be there for you. So those are three outcomes of persecution. Let me just give you a fourth act that Jesus gives to his disciples. Do not delay in leaving Jerusalem. Verse 20, he says this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. He goes on to say that it's going to be a time of horrific suffering. Tells them to run for the mountains. Don't come into Jerusalem. I believe that this was fulfilled in Acts or AD 70 when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans there. Why was Jerusalem sacked? We can read in other portions of Scripture that Israel had rejected Messiah, her king. God brings judgment. Verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What are the times of the Gentiles? Ask Paul in Romans chapter 11, where he says that this is the time where Gentiles are being brought into the body of Christ. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is our era. This is our time. And Jesus is saying, this is going to take place. Mountain peaks. How much time? Who knows? Semicolon. A couple thousand years in between, maybe. Maybe like that. Maybe not much time. But here's the picture. God is saying that intense times are going to come and Christians don't respond to the global chaos with fear. Whatever's going on in the world today, we're not going to be fearful people. We know this is coming. What do we do? We get ready. Back of your outline here. Be ready for Jesus to return. Three ways for us to be ready for Jesus to return. Look at verse 25 and following. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will be fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. How do we get ready? Number one is this. Watch out for your attitude. Watch out for your attitude. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 28. Straighten up and raise your heads. So, for a while, my family and I, we were watching Andy Griffith. And you know the characters in Andy Griffith. If there was an episode that had Barney in it, we were willing to watch it. If it didn't have Barney, we didn't want to watch it. But one of the other characters in Andy Griffith is Opie. And you know little Opie, when he hits disappointment... His chin is falling down to his belly button, and he walks around as though the world is going to end. And then Andy is coming along saying, come on, Ope, it's not that bad. Come on, Ope. And he gets him to cheer up and look at the whole thing in perspective. What happens when Christians see global chaos? What happens when they turn on Fox News and CNN in the evenings and and see all the things that are happening? Oftentimes, Christians act just like non-Christians. Their chins drop down to their belly buttons, and they become despairing. They become dooms, like doomsday people. And here's what Jesus is saying. Straighten up. Get ready. There are going to be global catastrophes that come on the world, but it has to happen. Verse 28 The truth is this, that when that happens, your redemption is drawing near. Christians, do not faint with fear. That's the negative statement that's here. We're wondering what's going to happen with the Moabs and the Foabs and all the other bombs that are dropped in the world. God is bringing judgment. Jesus says that the oceans will be roaring and the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and stars are going to be shaking. Christians, apocalyptic events are going to be taking place. But here's what he says in verses 27 and 28. Live with expectation that Jesus is going to return. Why? Why should we pick up our chins? Why should we live with anticipation? Number one is this. Jesus says in verse 28, your redemption is drawing near. Our true hope is not a better situation in this world. That's not the Christian hope. One of the great promises that we hold to is that we will have eternal life with God forever in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And God is saying, when these things are happening, watch out because your redemption is near. That word redeem is taken from the slave market where somebody would come into the slave market and look at that slave, that slave, and that slave and say, I'm going to buy you up. I'm going to carry you out. You're going to be mine. We get to a passage like this And the question is, when? When does this happen? Is this a pre-trib? Is this a post-trib? Is it a mid-trib? Trib, trib, trib. What's going on with the tribs? All right? Here's the truth. Here's the biblical truth. And here's what we all unite around. Jesus is coming back to redeem his people. We're no longer going to be slaves to the global chaos in this world. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are his and he's coming back to get you. Live with that kind of expectation the next time you see Greta or whoever on Fox News or Trapper on CNN. Right, it's tough stuff that's going on. But wait a second. 
I'm looking out for the Redeemer who's coming. Second reason that we need to watch our attitude positively is this. God's word is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Look at verses 32, 33. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, those of you who have studied eschatology, you know that this leaves plenty of people scratching their heads wondering, what in the world is this? I'll just say what I think it is and then move on. I think what Jesus is saying is that when these apocalyptic events start taking place, it's all going to happen within one generation. It's going to be quick. It's going to move. And there's going to be a flurry of suffering that happens, intense suffering that happens at the end, and then it's going to be done. But notice this, what he says, verse 33. Heaven and earth is going to unravel. It's going to pass away. But my words will not pass away. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. What's the truth that Jesus is saying about his word? The truth is, Jesus is coming again. God's word says that he will be coming either as your redeemer or as your judge. The question that each person in here needs to be asking this morning is, Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And if so, live with expectation. You will be redeemed. But if not, know this truth. He will be coming as your judge, as 2 Thessalonians 1 speaks about. When he comes back, he says that those who have opposed him will suffer punishment and eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord forever. That's his word. The word of God will be true. There's no way of escaping it. Heed his word. So Christians, watch out for your attitude. Why? Because you're going to be redeemed and God's word is true. Second, watch out for worldliness. Look at verse 34. It says this, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. What happens when suffering ramps up in people's lives? Well, naturally, we want to escape it. What happens when, people, when suffering ramps up in many people's lives this week? By Friday night, they're ready to hit the bars. Why is that? Because once you get lit up to a certain point, you can just kind of put the suffering out of your mind and not feel it anymore. Other people might hit the bars so that they can get lit up. Other people might just pursue the cares of this life so that they can escape what's going on. Jesus says these are mere distractions. You're not keeping your eyes on what's coming ahead. You've lost sight. And so Christians, watch out for worldliness. Watch out for means that say this is how you deal with suffering. What do we do? We continually look back to Jesus. And there is lots to be sober about, folks. As a Christian, there is lots to be excited about because Jesus is coming back. Watch out for worldliness. It will trap you. And last, you get ready. You watch out by praying. Look at verse 36. Stay awake at all times. How do you stay awake and stay alert? You pray. You pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says, stay awake. How's your prayer time going? You're spending time in prayer as a Christian. You need it. Jesus says your prayer helps you resist temptation to sin. 
Prayer also helps you stand in strength obeying Jesus. We need to be people of prayer. Folks, Jesus is coming back. Global chaos has to take place. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If so, lift up your chin and face the world events with the hope of victory that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will come back as your Redeemer. And if not, he's coming back as your judge. Non-Christian, let me appeal to you today that today you need to respond to Jesus Christ and surrender your life in faith to him. He is coming back. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, can I just encourage you to respond to the global chaos that is going on by anticipating Jesus' return, not focusing on losing your safety. Jesus does not say to go into tough times with a carefree mentality. That's not what he's saying here. Actually said to escape Jerusalem if they could. Escape persecution if you can, but not at the expense of denying Jesus Christ. When those times come, Christians, maybe in our lifetime, where the rapid acceleration of suffering and affliction takes place, we need to look to Jesus, look to the skies because he's coming back. Non-Christian, you're in a predicament this morning, searching for security in the world or by faith coming to Jesus Christ and surrendering your life and finding eternal security in him. There are fears in following Jesus because you have to give up your life to him. He becomes the Lord of your life. And in faith, you follow him and he grants you the forgiveness of sins. On Christian today, you can become a follower of him simply by praying to him and articulating something like this. Jesus, I know that in you I find the forgiveness of my sins. I want you to be my Savior. I surrender my life to you this morning. I want to follow you. Today could be the day of your salvation. Will you take just a moment to talk to God? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this portion in Luke. Ordinarily, we wouldn't sit down to study something like this on a Sunday morning, but just in faithfully going through it, you've brought us to this passage. Help us to respond to it well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, one last word before Luke comes. Eschatology, right? Eschatology People like to throw punches and people like to have their systems down. Okay, in the spirit of unity and grace, how do we respond to a sermon like this? Um, Not with division, but with expectation. We rally around what we can agree on, that Jesus is coming back. And then we continue to search the scriptures. What might it look like? We're not certain, but we want to keep the big picture of prophecy in mind. God wins. 
And every Christian in here can agree on that, that God wins.